Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1, 4 through 7. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priest, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So welcome to this beautiful fall evening. So glad that you're here, that it's finally fall, and that we get to be together for worship today. Um, I am preaching on the Jeremiah that you just heard, which we don't hear very often. I know Dave preached on Jeremiah a couple of weeks ago and called him the prophet of doom and gloom. And he is, you know, he would be a hard dinner guest, just as he said, but he also has such a love for the people that it really hurts him to watch them hurt themselves. Um, and so that, this letter from Jeremiah is really about uh, to the elders of Jerusalem who are trying to figure out what they're supposed to do in Babylon. So they've been exiled to Babylon after him writing them for 23 years and talking to them and saying, this is coming. Now they're actually there. And they're saying, you know, what are we supposed to do? Jeremiah has had this... Um, long time to talk to them and give them this bird's eye view of their plight in the world to no avail, to tell them about the human condition and what they're dealing with. You might say that it's a centuries-old self-management plan that they had in place, and it finally failed, and they were dragged off to Babylon by the foreign king. So the elders and the leaders, and of course the people, are seeking how to get back into the driver's seat of their future. Now that they've been exiled, living in a foreign land, it's more obvious that they're not in control, and they're just asking, how do we get that back? How do we get back in control? That's what we really like. That's where we'd really like to be. Um, the letter from Jeremiah basically tells them, um, actually, you were never in the driver's seat. You just think you were. Um, it is not even your car. It never was. So if you think of your, your body or your life or um, however you want to think of that, it, is, it was never even yours. So enjoy the use of that car while you have it, that you can fill it with gas and air in the tires, and God helps you with that. Be glad for the transportation that you get. But the illusion that you were ever in the driver's seat is not true. Um, in true Jeremiah fashion, he's telling them that to see the reality of their lives as receivers and not the drivers of their life, not the owners or the givers of life, that he is really that in their lives. So there are many ways that this story informs our own experience of power and management of our own life, that's self-management. And I have to tell you, this came up for me because Paul and Dave and Josh 
often in the last couple of weeks have been talking about this show called Succession, and I had not watched it, and I finally just succumbed and thought, all right, fine. So I've been watching it this week, and it really has helped me understand the story about Jeremiah a lot more. It is about a self-made man named Logan Roy, who started out as a poor boy in Scotland. He's born in Dundee, Scotland, but now he's the magnet, magnate of this the fifth largest media corporation in the world. And he has four grown children of different wives who, of course, are all neurotic in their own way, right? And we get to see, as as we're part of this, how how their neuroticness or neurosis plays out. Um, So what I was trying to figure out, like, what what are we looking at here? He has kind of a health crisis. They're all trying to position themselves to see that they are the successor in this business, but how? What are? what's the viewer's task here? What are we supposed to be doing? And I think it's to see which of these four grown children would be the best candidate to run this multi-billion dollar corporation. And as you watch all of them do kind of all these childish things that they're doing with each other and with the world, you think none of them look ready or able to do this, but they're always covering it up by showing, you know, oh, no, 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 I've got all this under control, you know, they're, they're spinning things, they're um, putting out other ideas about who they are. So it makes me feel like this is exactly what God feels like when he's watching us try everything in our power to escape this idea that we're lost or that we're little or we don't know what we're doing or that we're just basically human so that we want to appear that we are in total control of our lives to be God and watching this must just be excruciating. And Robert Capon reminds us that we spend our lives trying to convince ourselves that we're nice people, right? That we think that we're the victims of our failures, not the perpetrators of them. But as as I watch Succession, I realize, oh no, here it comes. Look, they just did this and this is going to happen to them. It feels easier to watch other people, right, like the Roy family, squirm and twist to please their father and by never appearing weak or appearing human or having any vulnerabilities at all. We see that their behavior is their undoing. Their self-management program to success is like our basic human operating system since Adam and Eve thought of it in the garden, But it's so hard to watch no one being willing to throw in the towel and say they don't know what they're doing and receive anything outside of themselves. So in one of the People magazines that arrive at my house every week, I describe it that way because I never ordered this magazine. I cannot seem to cancel it, but it arrives and I read it sometimes. So I was reading it this week. Jeannie Gaffigan, who is the um, wife of Jim Gaffigan, I don't know if you know him, but the comedian that we quote sometimes around here, had written an article called, I'd Like to Thank My Brain Tumor. And what she describes is a period of time after the removal of a tumor where she developed pneumonia and knew something had gone terribly wrong. So she says, I had no idea I was in the ICU. I was just angry. I wanted to be better. I knew I had my brain back and I was ready to go out and use that new tumor-free gray matter, but my body had different plans. I was so weak I couldn't move. At home, there were so many things to do. I had to make sure that Mayor, my daughter, was off her phone 
and that Michael didn't put the Legos in the Star Wars bin and just mess up my whole system. So my mind was spinning with all of this as I lay there practically paralyzed. I had come face to face with my demons. I was addicted to control, and I was in withdrawal. So what was Jeannie grateful for? She says, I'm grateful for that brain tumor. If it had not been for this thing that almost killed me, I would not be able to appreciate every breath I take, every drop of water that I swallow. And I'm grateful that I understand why God gave me the most generous, loving, fantastic, and funniest husband in the world. Now, Jim Gaffigan also adds his part of that, and he says that he just emotionally ate the whole time, gained 15 pounds, and was just really glad when she was better because he was not good at taking care of these five kids. But Jeannie's addiction is our addiction. She's describing our addiction. We want to be in control of our own lives, the way other people see us, the way we experience that, our own destinies. So Jesus however, is found in that small, dark place of surrender, that place that says, I don't know how to do this. I need help. Where we see our white flag being hoisted because we are the ones hoisting it. The word of Jeremiah to the people in exile is a word for us. The people's plan of self-management without God is over. There's been an intervention on their addiction for control of their own lives, and they are basically in treatment in Babylon, forced to receive just the gifts of God in a land where they have no power or no control. So you can call that land divorce or loneliness or flunking out or maybe a health crisis, or a loss. Whatever wakes you up to the true nature of the world as God's kingdom, where there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ, not you. These are called deaths, little deaths. We have such a fear of losing or being a failure that we spend our lives tap dancing to the approval of others hoping against hope that we will not be found out for the tap dancers that we really are. We seek to subvert God's management of our lives and the world. But the world has always had death at the center of the engine of life. We cannot run from the fact that death is what we are afraid of, either in the center of our success or in the physical sense. But that is the only place that Jesus Christ and grace is found. So Jeremiah prophesies to a truth that is present in the world from the beginning, that the rescue has taken place already, that no tap dancing to any tune of success will get us any closer to being accepted and forgiven than we already are. When he writes that people are to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. He's reiterating the promises of God to be with us no matter where we are or what we're doing. All we need to do is trust him. So when you're left wondering what God's will is for you in your life, Jeremiah sends you a letter. 
God's will for us is to trust him alone who rescued us from ourselves by rescuing us from death and the fear that it produces in us by giving us life. Our own secession plan has failed in a death of approval, leaving us with nothing, nothing to recommend us to the world, but nothing is where God creates new life, new faith, new freedom. By myself I am nothing, the Father does the work, it says in John. Jesus raises us from the dead, which means tonight you are under new management. Amen.